Hello, everyone, and welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. We're recording this episode still in the month of June, which is Pride Month. Um, It's one of my personal favorite months because you're able to celebrate and be who you want to be while being authentic to yourself. Also, before we get much further into this episode, I just want to say that if you haven't come out, just know that Pride Month is still for you and you can come out whenever you're ready. It's your story and you can tell it whenever and however you want. In our last episode, we discussed how you can be an ally and we also took time to define term in the LGBTQIA acronym. Yes. So in today's episode, we are going to take time discussing what makes up an unhealthy or abusive LGBTQIA plus teen relationship. We have shared that as prevention educators, teen dating violence is sort of our area of expertise. We know that there are many different ways that unhealthy behavior or violence is carried out that is specific to the LGBTQIA plus relationships. It's also really important to note that teen dating violence is even more prevalent in the LGBTQIA plus um, population, teen intimate partner relationships than in heterosexual teen intimate partner relationships. Also, it's important to highlight that the LGBTQIA+, any type of individual and teens may have trouble recognizing that they are victims of an abusive relationship, even when the battering is severe, because intimate partner violence is commonly defined and discussed within a heterosexual context. And so it's really important and critical to take that into consideration. Yeah. And there's, I think, a lot of misconceptions, right? We've talked a lot in previous episodes. There's a lot of misconceptions around, um, you know, straight, heteronormative, cisgender relationships. There's a lot of misconceptions around the abusive and unhealthy ones. So especially within the LGBTQIA community, um, yeah, a lot of misconceptions, which I'm really glad we kind of have the time to debunk, right, and discuss today. And we, yeah, we know that Relationship violence is absolutely common in LGBTQIA plus relationships. So according to a case study, this was done back in 2013, the study's titled Technology, Teen Dating Violence, Abuse and Bullying. Statistically, they found that 43% of participants that were in the LGBTQIA plus community reported being victims of physical violence compared to the 29% of the cis heterosexual youth. We know that 59% reported emotional abuse compared to the 46% of the cis hetero youth 37% reported digital abuse and harassment compared to the 26% of cis-hetero youth. And lastly, 23% reported sexual coercion compared to the 12% of cis-hetero youth. So yeah, we clearly do see a discrepancy here. There's higher reported numbers of relationship violence and LGBTQIA teen relationships. And so yeah, today we're going to really take the time to discuss how the violence and abuse can be played out and also some resources. And I feel like those numbers are high either for heterosexual youth and for LGBT youth. So I just think it just kind of shows that there needs to be help for both, you know? And if you can address like the ones with LGBT youth, it'll help the other heterosexual students as well. So I just think those, because both of those numbers are kind of scary to look at. Absolutely. We know that the motivation is the same for a visa partner. It doesn't matter if it's a heterosexual or same-sex relationship. They are looking for power and control over their partner in their personal life, which is the same motivation across all types of violence and abuse in relationships. Although we know some of the examples of abuse may look different, we're going to use one of our trusted wheels. I know my hosts have used this power and control wheel in the in other episodes on teen dating violence, domestic and domestic violence. So we also have a specific wheel for LGBTQ relationships. This is going to provide examples of how abuse occurs within this specific population. Absolutely. So we are going to start at the very top of the wheel. And although there will be a lot of similarities we will discuss, we are going to make sure to highlight some specific community examples. And so let's get started with the using coercion and threats component. And so what that may look like is making and or carrying out threats to do something to harm the victim, threatening to leave or commit suicide, driving recklessly to frighten the victim, 
or threatening to out them, right? And so I specifically want to highlight threatening to out them. Uh, I think when it comes to threatening to out them, it is a very common tactic that is used by an abuser because sometimes the victim may have may be in fear, right? Or have a fear about being outed. Um, we know that it's not easy to come out, right? And so, you know, the abuser may purposely use that as a form to gain power and control over their partner. And so if one partner is not out to everyone in their life, an abusive partner can threaten to disclose their sexual orientation or to out this person as a means to get their partner to submit to their wants and as a way to gain uh, power and control over them, like I mentioned earlier, which may lead the victim to agree to their partner's demands, right? Um, the fear of being outed and the potential of, you know, possibly losing their support system or losing, you know, a family member or any social relationships, you know, may be a reason on why they may submit. Other threats um, or examples of some threats is maybe threatening to out their birth name, their gender identity, and or their gender expression. The abusive partner may threaten to call the police and claim they are the abused person. The abusive partner may coerce their partner to minimize abuse to protect the image of the LGBT community, right? Knowing that there's already so much stigma and stereotypes around that. And like, you know, just imagine what you know, you calling the police is going to do, right? Abusers may coerce their partner into believing that they are the only person that will ever love them because of their sexual orientation or gender identity or gender expression. And so there's, you know, these forms of threats may look different in every situation and may be unique, right? So I just want to quickly highlight that. Also, when it comes to, uh, the next part of the power and control wheel, which is using intimidation, the abuser may use looks, actions, gestures to reinforce homophobic, biphobic, or transphobic control, right? And so it's really important to just be mindful and aware that this is something that also happens within a heterosexual relationship, but also, you know, when it comes to the LGBTQIA plus population, this may look different because of it, right? And so uh, we know that these when it comes to using intimidation, many abusers use different tactics in a sense, in a way, in means to gain power and control over their victim. And so, you know, they may simply give them a look, right, to, to make the victim know that they're upset. They may, you know, maybe uh, close their fist very tightly, and that may be a sign to the victim that they're really upset and some physical um, consequence may come from that, right? Some physical abuse. And so there's different ways mm. for them to be able to use intimidation and it looks differently for every situation. Yeah. And I remember talking about, I mean, within our domestic violence episode, I think within our teen dating violence episode, how that intimidation from someone that you love and care about or someone that you trust is just so impactful, right? So even though it may not seem right to someone that may not seem like a big deal, it's not, you know, physically abusive. They just bundled up their fist or they gave you a look, but I think we all know and understand, right? If you really do care about someone and they're really trying to put that fear in you, yeah, that, that could become really terrifying. And yeah, there's so many other complexities here, right? With all the ways that, yeah, there's could be reinforced homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, along with that. And so moving into our next part of the wheel, we have using emotional abuse. And so just like, you know, heteronormative relationships, um, one of the biggest components here is gaslighting. So really denying someone's reality, right? Maybe telling them that they're crazy, that this never happens, and to give a little bit of a surprise. So we're going to be doing a full episode on gaslighting coming up in the future. So we're really going to take that time and space to really go and dive into that. Um, but essentially, it really breaks down to, yeah, kind of making someone feel like they're crazy, the things that they said um, were never said, right? The things that happened never happened. And so especially in these kind of situations in LGBTQIA relationships, um, um, that gaslighting can be really pervasive, right? So maybe questioning that person and saying, you know, if you were a real lesbian, right, you wouldn't be doing these things. Or if you were, you know, a real gay man, you wouldn't be doing these things. And kind of making that person question their identity, right? And their identity in the LGBTQIA community. 
Um, another example of this can be maybe saying that their partners deserve the abuse because they are within the LGBTQIA community. And you know, this is also, this form of abuse is often the result of the abusive partner's own homophobia or internalized transphobia. Another example could be telling their partners that they're not quote unquote real uh, LGBTQIA plus community members, maybe because they have opposite sex friends, uh, perhaps because they have children from past relationships, or maybe they prefer certain sexual practices or used to have intimate relations with someone of the opposite sex. So kind of using that against them to again, kind of question or make them question their identity. And one last example is maybe saying that you're confused about that person's gender uh, orientation or identity to kind of undermine them, right? Or maybe say that you're just confused. You don't know who you are, right? Maybe you say you're a trans person, but that's not really who you are. You're just confused. So all of these ways to really kind of emotionally manipulate someone. And so the next part of the wheel, we have using isolation. And again, in other episodes, we've really talked about how isolation is one of the biggest components of unhealthy relationships. So really kind of removing anyone in that uh, unhealthy or abusive situation, possibly away from support systems, right? So away from friends, away from family. And so in these specific LGBTQIA relationships, uh, some examples that are kind of specific to that community could look like maybe limiting, um, limiting outside involvement in community events, right? Not allowing someone to attend uh, Pride or different groups where they can connect and get together with other people in the LGBTQIA community. Perhaps it's saying that, you know, no one's going to believe you, um, maybe about this abuse happening, right? Because you are in the LGBTQIA community. So, you know, no one down at that domestic violence center or no one at the hospital, the police, right, are not gonna believe you. So kind of using that as a way to keep them isolated, keep them reaching out for help. And of course, and again, this could be, you know, exactly the same in heteronormative relationships, but really coming down to just controlling what that person does, who they see, who they talk to, and perhaps even uh, tracking your locations or whereabouts. And the next part on the wheel is uh, minimizing, denying, and blaming. So this is kind of like making light of the abuse, uh, minimizing what the abuse is, when the abuse happened, saying that it wasn't that bad. Um, and then just even at times shifting the blame to the um, from the abuser to the person that's being abused. In a LGBTQ relationship, this can look a little bit different. Where it's you know it can be they can also be saying you know women can't abuse other women and vice versa. Men can't mm -hmm. abuse men just because they're the same um, same sex. Um, right. And also they can also say that you know if it's if they're both men and or both women if it's a relationship with the same sex that it's not abuse it's just a regular fight since they're both in the they're both men or they're both women it's it's just a regular fight so just kind of minimizing mm -hmm. and, and just changing that shifting that abuse into it's just just a fight because we are both men or we are both women and and then just even thinking that domestic violence is is a straight person's problem it doesn't happen in gay relationships because you know, we're both men and because we're both women. Because um, I feel like a lot of people still have that misconception that domestic violence is between a man and a woman, uh, which, you right. know, it's just if there's violence and there's somebody abusing another person and using that, these tactics to take control and power over the other person, you know, that, that is a domestic violence situation and it is an unhealthy mm -hmm. relationship as well. And then every people come out in different stages of their life some people you know have kids before so just using their kids to as a form of control and just saying you know like maybe they're not out to their kids or they're not out to special you know family members co-workers or loved ones so maybe just using that, using that as a threat as you know if you don't if you don't let me see the kids or i'm going to take away the kids if um you don't do what i'm telling you I'm gonna tell everybody else that you're gay, that you're lesbian, that you're trans, or whatever that, you know, whatever part of the LGBTQIA community you are, just using that as leverage and, you know, using your kids as well to control over your, your life. Yeah, and that's just a great amount of power. I think, 
thinking back to discussing how there's a big misconception, right, that violence or domestic violence doesn't happen because it's two men or it's two women. And I think, you know, there's there's really big misconceptions even in straight heteronormative relationships, right? I remember, uh, and we actually would show this to the ninth graders, it was a public service announcement, kind of like a little social experiment that was done. And it was showing people's reactions. They had to actors, right? They had a male and a female actor. Um, and what they would do is the, the first take, the male and the female actor were kind of walking in this public park and the male started to kind of become a little bit abusive verbally, um, was kind of getting a little bit aggressive just verbally with his partner. And onlookers saw this and it I mean, it took all of about 30 seconds for people to kind of step in and respond, right? And say like, hey, do you need help? Do not talk to her like that. Some other man came up and said, hey, my office is right there. If you're not safe, you know, come in and, and you can come in there for safety. We can call the cops. So then they kind of rewound the situation, right? They, you know, um, at a later time went back to the same thing, but this time it was the female that was perpetrating and being abusive, right? Towards the male. And I mean, really physically abusive, really verbally abusive and the public, reaction was completely night and day, right? So instead of having concern and, you know, bystanders that were kind of coming in um, to help, like they were in the first situation, um, this particular group of people in this public space were laughing. We're kind of watching this occur, right? Watching this man get hit, watching him be, you know, really aggressively um, like pinned up against a wall and spoken to um, and just really demeaned and there was no reaction, right? And so just thinking about how there's a, a general idea that like it just doesn't happen to men, even in these straight heteronormative relationships. Yeah, mm -hmm. of course there could be a huge kind of misconception when it comes to two men being in a relationship, right? And the, just the cultural way that we view men and their susceptibility to being victimized. So yeah, I think that's a really, a really important thing. Um, and I'm happy that we went over that today. Absolutely, thank you for highlighting that. Lisa. So the next part of the power and control component is using privilege. And so using privilege or ability to pass as straight, cisgender, um, to discredit, you know, the victim, to put the victim in danger, to cut off access to resources or use of system against the victim. And so also, you know, what this may look like is treating the victim like a servant or the abuser making all the big decisions. Uh, maybe having the abuser define each partner's roles or duties within the relationship, using privilege also to, you know, like I mentioned, cut off access to resources. And, you know, what could happen is an example of that is, you know, the abuser may manipulate the victim to believe that no help is available or no support systems are available for them because of their gender orientation or identity, right? And this is something that, that the victim can easily believe because of their past experiences, right? So it's really important to know that this is something that is real and definitely something that a lot of victims um, experience. Also, abusers may tell their partner that there's no help for them um, and that no one believes them because of their LGBTQ plus identity. Um, so, like I mentioned, because of their gender orientation or identity, the victim may believe, you know, due to their experience of perceived homo by or transphobia experiences, you know, that what the abuser is telling them is true. Economic abuse. So for the next component of the power and control wheel, in this section, the abuser may use tactics like controlling finances in the relationship, denying access to the money, or coercing a partner to pay for all expenses, right? They may also steal or destroy a partner's property or taking a partner's credit cards, cash, or checkbook. It's really important to know that economic abuse can look like getting the victim fired from their job too, um, which can be easier if the partner is of the same gender and calls impersonating the survivor to say, you know, I quit. Um, identity theft can also happen, which can be easy if the partner is the same gender. Um, using economic status to determine roles in the relationship is something that um, you know, can also kind of fall under this component, uh, threatening to out the partner to employer, threatening to out partner to parents or relatives, especially if they're paying for tuition, housing, utilities, 
or, you know, maybe even a possible inheritance that's coming their way, right? And so this may be something that the abuser will purposely use knowing that this will financially affect them, which again, you know, if they can create that kind of dependency on them and gain more power and control over it, they may be using this tactic to be able to, you know, gain that power and control over the victim. Yeah. And economic abuse is just such a big one. Right. And I didn't, to be honest, um, I'm so happy we went over that because I had never really even thought about the ability to perhaps impersonate, right. Your, your partner, if you are, you know, same sex partners and be able to, yeah, steal identity or, I mean, yeah, call in and create, if not absolute chaos, um, maybe, you know, get you fired from your job, right. Or create a lot of issues there. Um, and so, yeah, that's a really big one to think about, but overall, um, you know, I'm really happy that we got the chance to speak on this wheel. We've joked about how we have a wheel for everything, um, but you know, I think this really does a great job really showing us, um, you know, because there's a lot of commonality, right? We know there's a lot of overlap. A lot of these examples exist on the heteronormative power and control wheel as well as here, but it really does a great job then highlighting some of these specific examples for the LGBTQIA community and some that, like I just said, like I wasn't aware of that, right? And the ability to kind of take someone's identity, mm -hmm. just that whole, um, that whole part of it. So really happy we got to share that out. Um, but we also wanted to just discuss just some other considerations, right? That maybe weren't exactly included in the wheel, um, but you know, that do become kind of crucial components of these unhealthier or abusive relationships. And so one first thing to highlight is that when someone is first coming out, we know um, they're really vulnerable to abuse. So they may be losing friends, they may be losing family, mm -hmm. uh, they may be becoming really alienated from their cultural, ethnic, religious, or familial community and institutions. And so that isolation that most LGBTQIA people face as a result of homophobia, uh, this is really useful to a batterer, right? Who's trying to isolate and gain that power and control over their partner. Like that threat of outing someone is I, again, this is me speaking from um, cis, straight, white privilege, but in my example, in my, in my experience, um, I can only imagine how terrifying of a threat that is and how completely just disempowering, right? And how much control that's really going to have over someone if they're not out yet, if they really do worry and have, I mean, a lot of right in this, in this culture, in this world to worry about coming out, right? In certain spaces or with certain people, then yeah. Um, I mean, that could mean, you know, maybe losing their children if they're outed. It can mean ostracism. It can mean losing that job. So just such a powerful uh, first thing to really consider, right? Is just that whole coming out process and how vulnerable people really are um, a lot of the time in that coming out process. And I think it's great that we're talking about coming out because I feel like when we talk about coming out, we think that it's like a one thing that you do it with your loved ones or you do it with your family, but it's like you're coming out multiple times. You're always coming out to somebody right. that you meet, you know, it's, it's an yeah. ongoing thing. So that's, you know, it's scary to think about that. You have to like think about coming out because, you know, there has been times where people do treat, from my experience, they have been, I felt the, the difference in my treatment after I either said something or just, they just assume that I'm gay or whatever. And then you do feel that treatment, so I can just feel that, you know, you do feel that automatic isolation right away because you you are being treated differently. And it's, you know, it happens all the time. You're coming out multiple times with everybody that you meet. And it's it's a big, yeah. and that's a big, you know, power over somebody else to kind of use that because I feel like a lot of people within that gay community has felt that. Many of them have felt that, you know, in mm -hmm. some way, form, that isolation just by coming out. So it is something that you kind of have in the back of your mind, you know, am I going to get treated differently once they find out? Should I tell them? Right. Is this a safe place for me to be in? You know, and it's like things that you consider that because we are LGBT or because I'm, you know, in part of the community, it's something that's always lingering. Like, is this a safe place for me to, to be who I am, you know, to be authentic? And safety. That's what I was going to, I was going to echo that, right? I can only imagine that it's, it's a constant feeling of, am I going to be safe? doing this. And again, that's from a place where I don't understand that experience. Right. But I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I can only imagine that that's such a, such a huge fear is for, you know, your personal safety.
Yeah, and I think, you know, just kind of speaking on vulnerability, because I know we've discussed vulnerability many times in past episodes, and you all know that the struggle is real for me in regards to being vulnerable. So I can't imagine how it must feel for someone that is part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And, you know, having one of the most vulnerable parts of you or one of, you know, your, your, one of your secrets, just being exposed or threatened to be exposed, um, not just to, you know, specific person, but possible multiple people. I just can't imagine being in a situation like that and how hurtful that could be. And so I just want to say that there's so much support, you know, for anyone that's in the part of the LGBTQIA plus community and is experiencing something like that or is being threatened to be outed, right? It's super important that you kind of gain some support um, or have a support system to help you through that process because it can be very traumatic. And I just can't imagine going through that and being alone or feeling alone. I just... I, it's really heartbreaking when I really think about how that could be for someone. And so I just want to highlight, not only is that not okay for someone to do that, right? But that is a form of abuse. Like, you know, we just went over. So again, make sure that you kind of, you know, reach out to a support system. And I know we'll be talking a little bit more about that um, in just a second, but I just wanted to quickly highlight that. Support is big and you come out whenever you're ready. But moving on, um, some other power tactics and consideration are using vulnerabilities. A batter may use their own vulnerabilities, such as isolation or by ostracizing the other person, just like Lisa said earlier, in order to coerce or pressure their partner into staying with them, caring for them, or even making them the priority. And I feel like sometimes many people have that same experience. I call it the gay experience, you know, using that as a way to control the other person. So maybe the abuser didn't have a welcoming family and, you know, they got, they were isolated and they were kicked out. So just using that as a, their, as a way to control their partner, like saying, no, I don't have anybody else to turn to. Nobody else is going to mm-hmm. love me. Just using that as a tactic to kind of take control over the partner because the partner many times probably has experienced some sort of isolation in that way with family members because not Mm -hmm. always you know family is a big thing for for many people and maybe they had the same experience so just they can relate in on that level so this can exploit their partner for resources attention or even financial needs as being part of the gay community often um many people experience these different types of similarities because being part of the lgbtqia community there are similar experiences that we can empathize or relate to or in some way it's happened Mm -hmm. to you so they're on that same level already so just kind of using these situations that maybe either they may not experience themselves but they know other friends you know within that same community it just can have a big control the other person and not really listen to their boundaries or listen to what the other person is is wanting to get you know out of the relationship and it's going to be like a one-sided thing just because the abuser wants their needs to be met absolutely yeah i can definitely see how an abuser would use that tactic right um really kind of use that coercion manipulation to be able to really kind of have their partner become compliant knowing that you know they they have some form of understanding or empathy towards what they're you know experiencing or what they've gone through and so because of that they may be really kind of exploiting that and taking an advantage of that so yeah, I think that's such a great point to highlight um, and could possibly be very validating for those that are experiencing that. So just really quickly want to expand on the section that was part of the wheel on using children. It is important to know that in many states, the LGBTQIA plus individuals are not allowed to be the legal parent of their children, especially when the abuser is threatening to reveal their sexual or gender orientation to child or children or others to jeopardize parent-child relationship, custody, mm-hmm. or relationships with family, friends, school, or others. Okay, so just think about that for someone that has not come out completely and just having that held over your head and knowing that because they have been discriminated against, because they have been treated differently um, prior or because of what they've witnessed, others uh, from the LGBTQIA experience, uh, you know, this is a real fear for them, right? And so even in states where LGBT parents' rights are protected, not everyone has the access to systems to assert their rights 
So for a non-biological parent, the threat of having no contact with their child makes leaving an abusive situation even more complicated. And I think that's something real and something that is really important to highlight and discuss. It's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, right? To, to really think about that. And yeah, debilitating. If that's, you know, your real and honest threat that just because of my identity and, you know, who I am and yeah, I could have my children taken away, right? If I do choose to disclose this abuse or leave the situation, I mean, yeah, for a lot of individuals, parents in that situation, it's going to be debilitating. And that kind of leads us right into our last consideration um, outside the wheel, which is really keeping in mind that, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of leverage the institutional violence that the LGBTQIA community has historically faced, right? So just kind of those laws, right? And the ability to, you know, have children taken away because you're a part of that community, you know, really speaks to that. Um, and we just know that, you know, outside of some of these specific laws, um, there's been a lot of discrimination, uh, violence, oppression with experiences within law enforcement, right? And so, yeah, that's going to be another big vulnerability and something that that abuser can really leverage, right? And really speak to, um, you know, that, you know, if you go to the police, of course, they're not going to help you. And maybe, you know, all these awful things will happen, right? Because look at the ways in which we've been treated in the past or this community has been treated in the past. And also within the medical system as well, and especially trans people um, have specifically faced a lot of discrimination and oppression within our medical system. And so, yeah, just another huge form of control that batterers can really use, right, and really speak to um, by just saying maybe, yeah, you won't get help, you're not going to be believed, uh, or those people are not going to be there to support you or even acknowledge, right, that you're going through this. Yeah. So now that we have a lot of knowledge about warning signs and forms of manipulation and abuse that can occur, Let's discuss what we can do to support someone if they themselves are in an abusive situation or perhaps if a, maybe a listener has recognized that themselves that they're in an unhealthy and abusive relationship after learning these things today. First, it's important to know that regardless of your gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, gender expression, you deserve a healthy relationship where you are treated with respect and you're valued. You have the right to reach out when you are when you you are in need of help, regardless of your identity or who you choose to date. No matter what anybody says about the LGBTQ community, you deserve to be seen, heard, and loved. Just know that there are many agencies, just like Live Violence Free, that have amazing people like Lisa and JC that will treat you with respect, dignity, and will provide you with resources and the help you need. And Miguel. Miguel is one of those amazing live violence people <laughs> as well. So I can't leave you out, Miguel. I know. How did you not include yourself in there? You could have been like, and me, you know? Because I wanted to throw the spotlight out to other people. So I was uh, like, you know what? I'm, well, already thank saying, you, I'm already saying this, these wonderful words. Let me give them a shout out. <laughs> thank you. I will definitely accept those wonderful words. And thank you so much. <laughs> I'm right back at you. I also think it's just really important to discuss how the LGBTQ um, individuals, especially when it comes to teens, are also highly susceptible to human trafficking due to their higher risk of homelessness. And we know a lot of times they experience homelessness due to them being shut out or rejected by family, right? Or friends or even the community or institutions, right? And they are also at a higher risk due to the depression that they experience or other types of mental illness. And because of intimate partner um, abuse, that can also elevate the risk of them being trafficked. That's huge. I'm so happy that we mentioned that um, because I think, you know, and if anyone has not gone and listened to those episodes we did on human trafficking, I think, you know, especially if that kind of piqued your interest for mentioning that, I think it'd be, you know, we advise you go back and listen to those conversations. Um, but that, yeah, that's, that's hugely important to discuss because we know that a lot of the vulnerabilities that we really mentioned and highlighted throughout the episode today, they, they really correlate, right, with a lot of the vulnerabilities, um, you know, for a lot of the at-risk individuals that you know, kind of get into trafficking, right? Or kind of fall victim to trafficking. So thank you. I really, I'm happy that you brought that up. Oh, of course. Thank you. And, you know, with that being said, I just want to say that if you need to talk to someone about what is going on in your relationship, you can always reach out to our crisis line, which is our 24-hour crisis line at 530-544-4444. Or you can access our text chat on www.liveviolencefree.org 
Another great resource for teens specifically is Love is Respect. Their site, Love is Respect, has a chat feature, and they also have a tax chat you can access by texting Love is to 22522. Also, I think it's really critical and important to know that there are also price assigned specifically for the LGBTQIA plus community um, and individuals, as well as specific websites that will also be linked down below for you if you would prefer to speak to someone. And I just want to highlight that although there are so many nonprofits that are so amazing and are here to support survivors, right? Any survivor of um, domestic violence or, you know, relationship violence, it's important to know that sometimes they may not they may lack knowledge in regards to the LGBTQIA plus community and population, right? And so they may make a mistake, like possibly, you know, answering the phone and referring to you as ma'am or sir without asking for pronouns. And one, I just wanna you know, highlight that in advance and apologize if that mistake has ever happened. Um, but I think it's really important to highlight that and make it clear in regards to what your pronouns are, because it could be a great learning lesson for them. Um, and two, you know, that's why it comes in hand. What comes in really handy is having some of those LGBTQIA plus specific you know, websites or nonprofits. That way you know that you are in such great hands in regards to the knowledge and training that they have received on how they can best serve you and make you feel comfortable. So I just wanted to quickly highlight that. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, I think that's super important to keep in mind. And I know last time we spoke about, Miguel can, can make sure I'm correct on this. I, I'm believing it was the Trevor Project, which is the LGBTQIA specific. Okay, perfect. I see him shaking his head for yes. audio listeners. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we were gonna have everything linked below. That way you can, I mean, easily go and access any of these resources, any of these you know numbers, or just some of this information if you want to kind of take time, read through it mm -hmm. yourself. I know Trevor Project has a bunch of incredible information as well as a hotline. And so we'll have everything easily linked below for you. So we wanted to kind of just go over in the, the back half of our episode here, some just things we can keep in mind for having a conversation um, and supporting an LGBTQIA survivor. And so first, it's really important to just listen, right? And this, I mean, this comes into anyone having a, a conversation about a difficult relationship, um, and especially within the LGBTQIA community, right? Especially maybe this person, you know, has not technically come out yet. So maybe like hearing this story and this experience, um, it's kind of them coming out as well as sharing this abusive experience, right? So really important um, that we are just there to listen, right? They have our undivided attention while they're having such an important conversation with you. Also validating their feelings um, and avoid making over positive assumptions. And I know that that could be really kind of challenging to not do that. I know, especially if you're a positive person, if you're a really like caring, compassionate person, sometimes it's really easy um, to say things like, I understand, you know, this is gonna get better. This will all be over soon but let's shift some of that language because it's not necessarily helpful um, or may promote healing, right? So instead of saying, I understand, try replacing that with, I hear you. Uh, and I know, I think Brianna mentioned that several, several episodes ago, you know, that that's a really good thing to kind of plug in. If you wanna say, I understand, I hear you usually fits and works a lot better in that scenario. Um, and instead of saying things like it will get better or this will be over soon, try reframing those, those statements as, you know, I believe you, um, I hear you. And that sounds really hard to go through. I'm sorry you're going through that, right? Because it doesn't give this false sense that, you know, um, these things are going to be over soon and we'll get better. I hope they will, but we don't, we don't know that, right? And there's no timeline for someone to heal. Um, there's no, you know, one size fits all for people leaving, you know, violent or abusive relationships. And so really important um, to just frame it more in that way, because that's just a more empowering kind of approach. And just kind of adding on to that, just letting them, sometimes we don't need a cheerleader and we're not going to fix everything. You know, this person, we're not going to fix all the yeah. problems just by talking to them for 30 minutes. That's just not realistic. And it's sometimes people just want somebody to listen to them and to just, you know, hear them out and they don't need a cheerleader to tell them like, Oh, you know, it'll get better because they just want right. to be validated, you know? And by you saying kind of like, 
it'll get better. It's kind of saying like, well, in a way you're kind of not validating what they're feeling in that moment. So just kind of be present and just listen. Right. Yeah. It can be really minimizing to yeah. their experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next tips on expressing your concern, we discussed how there can be worry around being believed or treated with respect if an LGBT person discloses they are in a relationship. So a power, a powerful thing can be, can say, so something powerful that you can say is, I care about you. I am here for you. Because they may have had a lot of fear around reactions being not supported. So just, you know, mm-hmm. I'm here for you is a big one. I feel like that's just letting them know that, you know, whatever, whatever happens, doesn't matter that you're, you're going to be there to support them. And also using inclusive language that affirms the survivor. We discussed in our last episode how important it is to be inclusive when it comes to language and terminology. So absolutely apply that here. Don't assume someone's gender identity, sexual orientation, or pronouns. So use neutral language like partner instead of boyfriend, girlfriend, or useful terms to promote inclusiveness as well. And I think it's it's a huge thing to get out of that boyfriend and girlfriend because um, I feel like everybody uses that. We see that on TV. Mm-hmm. So just getting used to using the word partner, it'll just make your life so much easier because you really don't know who they're talking about and just the word partner is so neutral. And I can I see that being more common in any relationship now. It's not just within the LGBTQIA plus community. I feel like there's a lot of you know straight people that now say my partner this, my partner that, and mm-hmm. and it's just you know it's. It's a good way to even, you know, just throw it out there if you don't want to be personal with somebody else. You know, at work, I've noticed that sometimes people say, my partner this, and you don't have to be mm-hmm. so, like, by name, but you still want to let them know, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm committed to with somebody, and it shows that commitment, right. and you're not being like, oh, Joe this, or my husband, you know, all this, like, if you don't want to, if you want to be a little bit reserved, it applies. So it's just very useful for different situations. Yeah. And I think it's like a mature statement, to be honest, just as I've gotten older, like now I'm in my thirties and the idea of me being like, and of course I don't have to say it this way, but the idea of me being like my boyfriend, like just feels very high school at this point. So I just noticed as I got older, it just like felt more natural to say that. I don't know. I think that's just a a personal thing, but I just want to mention that as well. I definitely said my partner and I'm sure you listeners have heard me say that throughout. (laughs) I think the podcast, Mm -hmm. I'm always referring to my partner and I think there's so many assumptions that are made um, because I make that statement, you know, Mm-hmm. when I'm even working or even, you know, within the community. Um, and I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm like, you guys can make whatever. <laughs> I, I'm personally okay. I'm like, you can make whatever assumption you want. I'm still going to stay, yeah. you know, my partner. And I think you shouldn't make assumptions. You could simply ask me <laughs> for clarification. <laughs> um, but I sometimes just see even their facial reaction, which speaks a lot in regards to how people can be judgmental or just quickly right. jump to make assumptions. Um, so yes, I definitely use the word partner. And I think that's also something that's uh, kind of create more um, inclusivity in regards to, you know, if someone is coming out or someone's referring to their partner, feeling more comfortable knowing that others use that same term and, you know, they may not make specific assumptions around that. So with that being said, I also think it's really important to note that, you know, you should not be asking details in regards to someone's sexual orientation, identity or, or, um, you know, just their gender. So I think that's something to quickly highlight, you know, it's really important to specifically ask for pronouns, but not specific details or specific details on how they came out and how others reacted, unless they've kind of built that rapport with you already and are having a conversation around that. But in regards to that, you should be focusing on really empowering them and supporting them and wherever they're at and what their needs are and not specific details that could also be very triggering towards them or, you know, for them. So I think that's something important to really just highlight as well. And then, you know, uh, it's also important to just, you know, like I mentioned, let them set the pace for how much they want to discuss and what they want to disclose. Yeah. And that's just really empowering. Like I said before, coming out is such a personal thing that just like Mm -hmm. asking questions about your sexual orientation, you know, that's, I would say it's none of your, it's none of anybody's business what your preference is, and it's not something that you have to disclose if being asked. You know, that's something that's just for you to keep personally and just, you know, keep it to yourself. So you don't have, you don't have the obligation to 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 confirm anybody that if you 
that you are gay or you're not gay. That's that's your story. That's yours. That's your truth, and and you can hold on to it as long as you want to. It's it's up to you. In coming out, that process is it's intense enough um, that you don't need to share it with anybody else. And when you do share it, it's like a it should be an honor that somebody's sharing how they came out because it's it looks very different right. for everybody and it's very mm-hmm. stressful. You know, it's it's a stressful situation and it's a big step, even if it might look um, different. Because some people say like, oh, you know, we all knew that you know that you were gay or this and that but even then even if you knew or whatever it was it's still a big step that you're you know coming out and you're telling you're telling your truth and you're being authentic to yourself so that's a huge step so just know that when anybody tells you you know they're coming out story should kind of be taken as an honor because it's it's Mm -hmm. never met anybody that says it's it's easy to do right yeah I definitely think it should be an honor. And I definitely think that, you know, you have a very important role to be a great support system um, and feel honored in the situation that they had enough trust, um, you know, to be able to tell you. And so I feel like that comes with a big responsibility in regards to, you know, knowing that you could really play a very important role in how you can be supportive um, for that person. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just so happy for this whole episode today. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of this conversation, I was just, yeah, really thrilled to bring to this platform, right? And really discuss because I think there was a lot of misconceptions. I think um, just to be able to talk about a lot of the different types of abuse, but then just a lot of the considerations. Miguel, I appreciate so much you drawing upon your own personal experiences and really sharing that out because, yeah, I think there's just a lot of complexity. There's just a lot of ways in which, especially when you know, you are um, straight, cisgender, or, you know, just not in the LGBTQIA community, and perhaps does don't have a lot of exposure, right, to the LGBTQIA mm-hmm. community, a lot of these things can be not only misunderstood, but not known at all, right? And so mm-hmm. just another big component to how, especially, right, talking about violent and abusive relationships, how these things can really kind of like manifest and occur, right? Because, you know, no one really knows or understands the dynamics. So there's not really individuals to maybe step in, right? Provide support or like education around these subjects. And so I'm really happy. And before we head into our meditation, we just want to share out a few last kind of supportive, um, appropriate drama informed phrases or things that you can say to an LGBTQIA plus survivor. And so some of those phrases, um, cause you know, personally, I'll, I'll say this doing this work, you know, after a period of time doing work like this, you just get very ingrained where, yeah, I don't, you don't have to have like phrases written down. Right. But especially at first in this role, in this position, um, I really kind of looked to just empowering statements, right. And really kind of correct things that I could say as a guide, right. Because these conversations, they can be really difficult, right? Even just being Mm -hmm. the supportive person can be so difficult. And so it's just good to have kind of these little like templates, right? And things just in mind. So of course, we've said this before, um, a big one, a big statement you could use is I believe you. Another statement you can use is it took a lot of courage to tell me about this. And even just talking about, right? Like hearing someone's coming out story and the honor that is because of how difficult that experience was. Like, absolutely, right? That's such a courageous thing to do is share that. Um, another one is it's not your fault. And that's another one that we've shared, I think over and over and over, right. And to really empower survivors and let them know that the abuse, um, that occurred, uh, or whatever occurred was not their fault. Uh, another one is you did nothing to deserve this kind of coupling right off that. Right. Um, and another one is you're not alone. I think that's specifically important after our conversation today, talking about vulnerabilities, talking about, you know, so many things that can happen as far as being ostracized from communities, losing support systems for just being in the LGBTQIA community, and then let alone, right, being within that violent abusive relationship. So just knowing that person is not alone, I think is huge. Um, and one last one, I care and I'm here to listen or help in any way I can. So even if you're just the person that does just sit there, listens without trying to give advice, without trying to give, you know, a timeline for when this is going to get better. Maybe you're the person that just finds the hotline number. Maybe you dial the phone for them, or maybe you sit with them while they make a phone call, right? Or utilize that chat feature so they can reach out and talk to someone. So that's, I think, really important stuff to keep in mind. And again, if you're maybe going to be entering into one of these conversations, you have someone close to you, you, you're yourself kind of need this knowledge, just great things to kind of keep in your back pocket. Absolutely. Thank you so much for highlighting um, that, Lisa. I think regardless if you do know some of these phrases that you could use or you're using these 
phrases, I think it's important to just even be reminded, right, in regards to how you can make someone feel supported. So thank you. And so with that being said, we are going to move on into our little self-care time in our podcast together. And so we are going to do a meditation. And this specific meditation is a worthy and self-love meditation. And I think, you know, with the topic that we just discussed, I think it's super important for us to remind ourselves that we are all worthy and um, how important it is to practice some self-love. So uh, go ahead and close your eyes. Relax into a comfortable position. Invite your body to settle into a space where you can be calm and alert. Notice that as you become to relax, your other senses become heightened. You may be more aware of the sounds around you, the sensation of your body against the floor or chair or bed that's supporting you. Just breathe. Invite your body to slow down. Continue to just breathe. You're breathing to elongate its rhythm, your shoulders to relax and eyes to get heavy. Continue to breathe and be here now in this self-love meditation. Surrender to the power of your body to bring you to the present moment. Let go of the thoughts and emotions that are trying to distract you and just breathe. You are meant to be here, just the way you are. You are worthy. Continue to just breathe. You are worthy of showing up in this life, of this self-love, of being seen, being heard, and being respected. You are worthy of great love, incredible friendships, You are worthy of being part of this conversation. You are worthy of creating the conversation. Continue to breathe. You are worthy of a healthy body, a healthy mind, and living the life you desire. You are simply worthy. Continue to breathe. Slowly begin to reawaken your body. Move or stretch some of your muscles. Slowly open your eyes and you can reawaken and join us when you're ready. Thank you for that, JC. That was so nice. I'm ready to start the day. I'm not a morning person, but right now I'm ready to go take a jog. (laughs) And are you feeling worthy, Miguel? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Okay, so I just want to give a big thank you to the listeners for taking the time to gain a better understanding on how unhealthy and abusive relationship exists within the LGBTQIA community. And also what you can do to either as a community member or as an ally to support someone who is in one of these relationships. All of the resources we discussed are linked below, so please continue to do your own work in understanding the complexity of the relationships and considerations for allyship. And to my LGBTQIA community members, just remember you are seen and you matter. There is nothing wrong with you. Just keep channeling your inner unicorn and remember that there's resources for you. Thank you, and we hope you will join us for our next conversation.